I'm Jason Van Medding. And I'm Ksenia Chmutanen. Welcome to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. Okay, Monday again. Hello, everyone. Hey, Jason. Hey, how are you? I'm good. This is episode 13 13 yay episode 13 wow we're like we're kind of almost at the end of the season two now whoa yeah we're getting there it's pretty amazing how time flies i know i feel like we've been kind of recording for a really long time but also a really short time but this is great yeah well these five episodes that we have where we're looking at different groups that are generally framed as vulnerable or marginalized is i think really interesting and relevant to anyone who's looking at disasters as a researcher or a practitioner or a member of the public who just wants to understand why disasters happen and who is impacted in them totally and i think today we're kind of twisting discussion a little bit to turning it to a group that really isn't heard at all mm. just because they're considered not to be old enough not to be mature enough mm. so we're going to talk about children and disasters and um we have the best guest for this topic i'm sure anyone who's ever engaged with the topic of children and disasters have heard of marla petal welcome marla thanks jason and xenia um I'm Marla Petal. I'm Principal Advisor for Urban Resilience and School Safety for Save the Children. And I've been working with Save the Children for about seven years. And I've been working in the field of disaster risk reduction, public education and public awareness for uh, safety and resilience for about uh, 20 some years. Um, Most of my work currently um, is focused in the Asia and Pacific regions, um, but um, I've also worked in uh, Turkey and Central Asia and South Asia and so on. So, um, and I reside in the U.S. So what's really at the core of my focus is children's rights. And we'll get back to that later on. Well, I guess that's, that's a great start, you know, it's a, an excellent segue to the question that I'm about to ask you. Um, so in the first season, we talked a lot about vulnerability, you know, the, the problem with the term, we talked a lot about root causes and marginalization. And of course, when we discuss vulnerable population in disaster studies, very often children come at the forefront, right? So children are very often described as vulnerable and the kind of that, you know, this is the group we really need to um, take care of. And I, and I know that you find this narrative quite problematic. Um, so what is the problem with it? And are there any benefits to it? Well, I think the problem with any narrative about vulnerable groups of people is that, you know, when you actually meet those um individuals who are members of the vulnerable group category, um, they themselves really do not appreciate being labeled um, as immutably vulnerable. You know, I I mean, everybody would like to think that they can get enough uh, knowledge and to be empowered so that they are, you know, not helpless. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't, it's, it's could be quite paternalistic uh, for us to name others as vulnerable. Um, and to suggest in any way that that is an unchanging kind of a thing, you know, well, if you're a woman, you're just always going to be vulnerable. And, you know, I think most women certainly would want to reject that, um, 
you yeah. know, uh, that pigeonholing. So, I mean, the same is really true for children. I mean, look, obviously, infants and toddlers don't have a lot of, um, you know, uh, power and capacity to resist the impacts of uh, hazards on their young lives. True. Um, but, you know, young people's uh, capacities, their knowledge and their strengths can certainly be developed. And uh, we really shouldn't underestimate them. But do you think there are any benefits to kind of to this um, talk of children's vulnerability or um, w- w- why? Why does this narrative exist full stop? I mean, in ter- from a child rights perspective, we adults are duty bearers for delivering the rights of children. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I do think that it's important that adults recognize and that we don't offload this onto children and make them responsible for their own safety. Yeah. Uh, no, that's that's not it at all. But um I just prefer a rights-based approach because it says, you know, we're all in this together. Um, You know, children have four core sort of rights, the right to survival and safety, the right to protection, uh, the right to development, and that includes education, and the right to participation. And so I think the question for us is, you know, how well are we doing at assuring that their rights are being fulfilled? Right. And when we think of vulnerability, a lot of times that vulnerability, um, if we're thinking about risk creation, um, is created by other actors and kind of foisted upon those um, groups that are um, at the margins of society, right? So, I mean, to, to what extent can focusing on those injustices be a pathway to actually solving the problem? Well, now I think you've hit on really the core issue, which uh, which I think is about inequities in the distribution of, of risk. Um, you know, some people who live high up on the hill, um, you know, out of the flood zone are well protected from the impacts of the next rainfall. And uh, yet children who are living, um, you know, down by the water, um, their schooling may be interrupted multiple times per year. So I think what what we frequently miss when we're looking at talking about um, children is um, the tremendous inequalities, um, which are, you know, about income, about migration status, about um, access to land, um, and so on, that, uh, you know, we, we're insufficiently focused on. Now, that said, you know, some of those who, you know, may be quite um, sanguine about their their situation, um, today they look to be, you know, very privileged, and yet tomorrow they may be impacted by uh, a sudden onset hazard and may be, you know, right down there at the bottom with, uh, with the most vulnerable of all. So, you know, it, it's... Um, we have to be vigilant to all of that, uh, and we are all in this together. Um, but I'm typically looking at um, where do we find the inequities and where do we find the most uh, vulnerable and marginalized, and and um, you know how do we tackle issues for them? That said, you know you can't just go to you know the worst off and and think that you can just um, 
you know, help them because frequently the process of bringing people um, out of um, uh, immiserating conditions depends on the people just above them in the pecking order. You know, so so just as an example of that, you know, when you're doing disaster response, um, you often have to focus, especially on the communities surrounding those that are most heavily impacted, because that's where the health is going to be coming from. I think some of this is is also hitting on the common theme in our first season where we were talking about disasters as a long as a long term process of risk accumulating and then hazard impact and the common narrative or discourse in the public which is about disasters as events which is more focused on that emergency um so yeah, how, how much of this is, is also about educating people about that long-term inequity and injustice in society and shifting people's gaze away from just the events? Yeah, that is really the paradigm shift that has to happen. And we have been um, hamstrung by that now for decades. I mean, <laughs> John Stewart, uh, you know, uh, The Daily Show, um, after Hurricane Katrina did this humorous piece showing this uh, the disaster cycle, you know, Um, and, uh, and he said, I don't know what you guys are all complaining about. You know, this is the disaster cycle and this is what FEMA's promised you. And that's what they're delivering, you know, (laughs) Uh, disaster, prepare, respond. And then then it comes the next disaster, you know? So, I mean, yeah, this is a problem. Um, Well, I, I think that the event driven um, view of disaster impacts has been very, very, um, difficult. And I'll be frank with you, I don't even like using the word disasters in the work that I do anymore, because mm. disasters evoke something that has to meet a particular threshold um, that, you know, that you need outside help. Um, and, and it's yeah. all driven by this sort of UN silos, um, you know, about humanitarian assistance and, you know, the request for international aid and all of that. And then, you know, what happens when we go down that route is that you know, the humanitarian emergency, of course, you know, Maslow's hierarchy takes hold. We're really looking for, you know, shelter, food, sanitation, and so on. And then once those things are, you know, kind of under control, the emergency is over. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. that completely overlooks children and completely overlooks the education sector. So uh, to give you the best example I have of this is probably the Kashmir earthquake that took place in 2005. Okay. Mm -hmm. And however long that emergency lasted, finally it was over and everybody packed up and the humanitarians went home. And 15 years later, I'm still reading articles about the schools that have not been rebuilt. Mm. I mean, this is a generation that didn't have schools to go to. It's just... It's a big black hole. So that's one that's one side of the problem. The other side of the problem is that, you know, the inequities build every time it rains. And those events don't even have names. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, it rained yeah. in April. Okay. <laughs> so that was another 10 days of school lost. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so we're just really missing um, the impacts of, of hazards on children when we frame it in terms of these um 
you know, uh, high impact events only. It, it, it's um, just strange how generally in disasters, we don't seem to uh, think long term at all, right? We, as you just said, we just focus on one event and we lack longitudinal studies. Um, we lack understanding of the actual impact, you know, in 10 years, 20 years, um, because that's not what we consider development. I mean, we as a society, right? Yeah, that's that sums it up. <laughs> that's a sad story of our development or undevelopment. The stuff we've been looking at, Ksenia, with regards to having a hazard-centric understanding of disaster mm. or a socially conscious one really changes the way you talk about the risk and um, sort of takes takes the responsibility away from having that longer-term plan and longer-term um you know, strategy for rebuilding, for instance, because if people are focused on the event, they're not going to be asking after two years or five years um, what's going on because there's like an assumption that recovery should have finished already. (laughs) Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's also why we, of course, are, you know, with you in the campaign, you know, for hashtag no natural disasters. I mean, Mm. you know, the, Indeed, these things are socially constructed, but I I would push it further to say that, you know, the very term disaster means that you seem to be talking about an event rather than the accumulation of of hazard impacts of all kinds that interact. Um, So, you know, that it just misses extensive hazard impacts. You know, you may never have a disaster and still have extensive hazard impacts. They go completely ignored. So it is difficult to see the patterns in in these things. You know, it it takes um, a great deal of reframing the narrative as you're trying to do um, to get at, you know, what's what's really going on. And if you take this to the urban setting where we're working now, and particularly, let's say, urban slums, you know, where you're starting with, um, you know, lack of infrastructure, um, you know, much more pronounced vulnerabilities of, of many different kinds. And then you add on top of that something else that, um, well, let's take air quality, which, oh, that's never been mm. part of uh, the mandate of, uh, of the UN agencies that, that support risk reduction. So, you know, and, and now we can't breathe. So in relation to children in particular, have you found any successful ways of reframing that to get the different audiences to understand the, the really important um, things that they maybe need to look at differently? I would say, this is just my gut instinct about it, is that when we start with child rights and human rights, Um, we get people involved in a conversation in which they say, yeah, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Maybe it's supposed to be another way. Um, And then what are all of the ways in which um, I might not be accessing my rights? I mean, we have this issue going on right now in the United States with regard to, um, you know, 
children's rights for survival and protection in terms of being able to remain with their families, for example. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think when you, I, I think it's important to start with that um, human rights and child rights narrative. And even when that's not a particularly um, popular thing, or it seems to be, you know, seems to be very Western in context, it's still a really interesting and good conversation starting point. Yeah. yeah. And often it's not until we have that conversation that children and parents, for example, say, oh, you mean I should be able to go to school even though when it rains in my area, it floods here and it floods there and the school is inundated. And But really that's not the way it should be, right? Yeah. So then they begin to be able to question the the inequities. But I suppose that's a very difficult conversation um, to, to, to engage uh, ourselves as well as children in, right? And that kind of brings us to the idea of capacity. So we, of course, we, as researchers, I guess, we know we that children do have capacities. But hardly anyone ever asks children what it is they want and what it is they can do right how how do we start the conversation <laughs> how do we um how, how do we enhance capacity how do we find capacity in the first place yes well um all very good and some questions deeper than we can probably uh um, completely suss out here but but you answered the question already i mean the the first thing we do is ask them and, you know, and we try not to ask children in a tokenistic way. That is to say, you know, we don't <laughs> yeah. just go to one child champion, you know. I mean, <laughs> we we try to engage children and youth everywhere that we encounter them and to have some uh, somewhat systematic ways of consulting with them and bringing them into the conversation. So I'm really delighted to be able to tell you that, um, well, by the time you air this, the words into action um, guide on children and youth engagement will have been published um, and you will be able to find that on prevention web very cool that's brilliant and that's it is brilliant. um it has um been done in a very consultative fashion with a lot of engagement from the um, un major stakeholder group on children and youth and i think it gives um, a tremendous compendium of answers to the question of um so how do we engage children That's absolutely brilliant because I think we we all need to uh, really read it up and you know understand what it is we're supposed to be doing and not doing. But most importantly, how do we make those in power listen to children, even if we engage with them? That's the easiest part. Oh my goodness, <laughs> that we have proof. Go, Marla, of. go. <laughs> yeah, it's so exciting. Look, I mean, when we do this on the municipal level, you know. We bring a group of kids together. They they do some risk assessment in their own uh, environments, and they 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 get ready and do some reporting. And then they ask to meet with their local uh, officials, their ward counselor, mm -hmm. their mayor, the this or that committee. And you know, usually those folks will indulge them and say, "Sure, come and talk to us." And you know, usually they'll uh, schedule them for twenty minutes or thirty minutes. And once they get in the door, the conversation typically takes a lot longer, mm. um, you know. So, so I think what happens is that, you know, 
children are full of enthusiasm. They're very thoughtful. They're passionate. Uh, they're not in there, you know, uh, for any reasons of ego. And the adults are absolutely captivated in that process. So I would say just get them in the room together and close the door, you know, and if you can do it in such a way that they don't, you know, that the adults don't have a next meeting that they have to run out to, um, you know, some amazing things will happen. And then what we want to see is that those um, mechanisms for consultation with children and youth are, you know, are regularized and somewhat um I'm hesitant to say institutionalized, but we want to see, um, you know, these processes be organic and inclusive and bring in a lot of um, participation. And so we want to see it being used as a means of, of children learning uh, good citizenship. Mm-hmm. So I think once once our children and youth recognize that anybody, somebody is listening to them and facilitating the dialogue, um, then you know, that emboldens them. And, and many of these young people who have these experiences um, gain a great deal of confidence and I think will be our future leaders. Hopefully. I guess we've seen this in the last couple of years, right, with children and young people actually coming to the forefront. And, um, well, it looks like some powerful people are pretty scared of them, which is great. Well, yes, we certainly see youth emerging um, as leaders in climate justice. And, um, you know, and I think, you know, the expression that I think we need to keep in mind all the time, the one that's been popularized um, by the disability rights community is nothing for us without us. Yeah. You know, let's get beyond tokenism. Absolutely. How do we support those young people in, in a position where, they're kind of spoken down to? Well, I think there's some guidance tools. For example, um, Save the Children is working with um, partners globally that are interested in child-friendly um, urban environments, um, you know, cities for children and youth. And we're working on um, some tools that have been in development for about 20 years, um, which are some scorecards that children and youth can use to measure urban resilience. Um, and these were first developed by the Children's Environmental Research Group, and then there were versions of them um, from UNICEF's Child-Friendly Cities, and we're kind of doing a refresh on those to put some tools um, into the hands of children and youth and um, civil society organizations that are easy to use to engage children in the conversation. Um you know, ideally, these would then be automated so that, um, you know, once you did some data collection and and had your young citizen researchers um, out in their neighborhoods, then they would be able to generate some automated reports on what they're finding and some change detection to see whether they can um, achieve some improvements. So all of these are, um, you know, these are under the heading of social accountability tools. Um, and I think that if we can work on those together, um, we can empower a lot of people, not just children, who are currently, you know, marginalized and, and most vulnerable. No, that's great. And I, I think um, the, the other thing is, how do we reach uh, people who are writing about this, you reach scientists, you reach journalists to change the way that they frame their 
stories about about children have you have you had much engagements with those who are writing about these stories very insufficient um Hmm. but what that raises is a very interesting thing Uh, i think i'm very much um a bit enamored, I suppose, of collective impact uh, approach. Mm -hmm. And the collective impact approach says, you know, get everybody into the room, find all the unusual as well as usual stakeholders, um, get them onto a common agenda, identify their common targets and indicators, engage in mutually reinforcing activities, stay in constant communication, and have some backbone support. Because that's the only thing that works when you're dealing with sort of, you know, so-called wicked problems. Mm-hmm. But there's a hidden thing in that in that approach that we often miss, which is the identification of the unusual stakeholders. And the one a group that you just touched on, journalists, writers, um, you know, researchers for that matter as well, we need to do... Um, an ongoing stakeholder engagement process where we identify these individuals by name. You know, if you ever read just one article by a journalist who kind of gets the idea, you know, I mean, we've, they've got to be our new best friend. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I I think, you know, we've also worked with um, journalism clubs in high schools and that's another place where, you know, we actually can nurture um, child and youth journalists yeah. And and get them involved as the writers for the next generation. So you know, mm. I think we just we need to be. Um, you've you've hit on a, a a group that really needs to get much more into the central focus of our of our work, which is the bridging communicators that that carry the messages. Absolutely, mm. yeah. Well, it really has been a privilege to have Marlo Pedalon with us today, talking about children and disasters, and we hope it won't be the last time that you join us. Marla. And um, just for those who haven't noticed, Ksenia and I set up a Facebook page recently. It's again at Disasters Decon. Um, You can join that Facebook page, share with your friends and so on. Um, We did that specifically so we could start doing some live streams. And we did the first one of those the other day where we were talking about the next book we were going to read in our Disasters Deconstructed book and film group, which is The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. So if anyone wants to join that group, please get on there, get the book and get reading. And maybe you can join us in our next special episode where we discuss that book. Um, As always, reach out on Twitter. um, Tell us what you think of this episode or just engage in whatever way you want to. And so Marla, thanks again for being with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Marla. Nice talking to you. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. You've been listening to Ksenia, Jason, and me, Marla Petal, on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast.